Uh, would you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1? Uh, we're going to finish the first chapter of Acts today. And good morning again to you. Good morning to those of you in Wilmington. Uh, thank you for joining us. Acts chapter 1, and I want to start this morning with an exercise uh, that I'm going to ask the youngest people in the room to help me out with. We're going to play a little game. I want you to imagine, uh, see I did this poorly in the first service, and I hurt some hearts, little hearts, so I want to make sure I don't do this. I'm going to put a, imagine I have a, well you don't have to imagine my hands behind my back because it is, but I have a number behind my back. Uh, number one or number two, and um, I want you to imagine a number in your mind, okay? And let's just say if you got it right, your parents get to have to serve dessert to you for dinner, all right? Would you want to play this game? Is this game we should play? So this is where I ended up hurting some hearts as I cheated, and I picked a different number than one and two. So I, I, what I, I can't actually show you the hand because I can't bind your parents in this. But I want you, those of you who are thinking through this, to imagine, is this the kind of game you'd want to play? Like, pick my number. Okay? So let's scratch that for a second, and I want to do another one. I'm going to put my hand behind my back. And it's the number one or it's the number two. And I want you to pick in your mind. And if you get this number right, you have to go to school every Saturday of the school year. You still want to play? <laughs> right? It changes the nature of it, doesn't it? Like, before when, and we don't need to do that one either, don't worry. I would never, I hated grade school so much, I would never do that to another person. Um, but it's interesting how in the first example, uh, the stakes aren't that high. It's kind of... Uh, it's fun. It's a game. There's no risk. In the second one, if you were to play that game, someone would call you reckless. They would say it was foolish. Why in the world would you play that game? That's a, that's a real gamble. It's a real gamble because the result really matters. It's the difference between every Saturday of your school year belonging to you or belonging to the state. We don't, we're not that reckless. You know, it's one thing if someone says, hey, what ice cream do you want? And you go, I don't care. Strawberry, chocolate, whatever you want. Go get it, right? Flip the coin. Who cares? Just the stakes on that subject are inconsequential. But would you flip a coin on who you would marry? You know, when things really matter now, it really seems as though we shouldn't just gamble on that. Let me ask you this. Would you draw lots to determine who the twelfth apostle should be? Because that's what happens today. And sometimes to us that feels reckless. As we finish up the, the, the first chapter of Acts, we're going to start in the 12th verse and we'll finish by the end of the morning all the way through. Uh, we'll eventually get to the subject of, of uh, picking lots. 
And, uh, but w- let's just push that off for a little while. Let's just sort of enjoy uh, what the book of Acts has to give us on the way there. It's a very, this is an, these 15 or so verses account for about a one-week time period in human history, which would sound inconsequential, except it's one of the most unique weeks spiritually of all time. Uh, before this week, the ministry of Jesus Christ was present on earth. And after this week, the ministry of Jesus Christ is present in the Holy Spirit. This is a strange week where they don't have either. And, you know, I'm really just trying to highlight the strangeness of it. I, I, don't, I don't think there's necessarily great consequence in Scripture from it, except that we get this odd opportunity to peer in to a time when people are waiting for the Lord without the Spirit. And I want us to look at that. I want us to look at what, what did they have during this week to sort of anchor themselves in light of what we have. Um, so let's walk through this week together. I want to read uh, verses 12 to 14. And uh, we'll learn what we can learn here. This is speaking of the disciples. It says, They then returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, I'm going to just frame this for a second. If we're going to try to think of what did they have during this week, um, we could look at this passage and say, well, they, they may not have had the Spirit, but they had faith. There's a group of people who continue to gather together, continue in prayer, and they believe who Jesus said he was. In fact, there's actually several things that I find a little bit remarkable here that sort of lend themselves both to the truthfulness of the text and also lend themselves to uh, understanding a little bit more about the nature of their faith. They come up in the 14th verse. Uh, The first one that sort of I find lends itself to the truthfulness of the story is the fact that Luke says this. He's talking about how the the apostles were in one accord. They devoted themselves to prayer. And he says, together with the women. And that is, in our day and time, that doesn't feel unique. That doesn't feel special. It just feels like a commonplace detail. But in uh, historic narrative of this period, um, that is actually quite atypical. It's very unusual to incorporate uh, what are the women doing into the story. This, this period of time, it was when you, you just think back through your, your high school, when you would re- read you, the Odyssey or the Iliad or Ulysses or whatever it was you were reading, uh, Troy and all of those accounts, uh, they are almost entirely almost entirely about men until it involves a 
a goddess or an angelic type woman, some sort of prophetess, some very colorful, very often sensual caricature of a woman. In that case, the sort of the woman enters in in a very notable way with a very specific kind of role, but almost never in a normal way. And we find out here in the 14th verse, for one, Luke, is, Luke chooses to include it, which tells me two things. One, it inclines me towards the truthfulness. And I read this from faith, so I don't, I don't need this, but it does remind me and incline me towards the truthfulness of the text. And it also tells me that the way the apostles viewed women already is different than the world around them. Already their, their fellowship is seen, it's seen as men and women. In the upper room, the apostles are there and the women are there praying continually in one accord. It's worth noting. Here's the second thing, and this is, I think, maybe a little more notable even. Upstairs in this room, as they pray in one accord to the Lord, is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, just think about that. Most of you probably have siblings. Can you imagine if your sibling told you one day that they had never done a sin and they were the incarnate Son of God, the Savior of the world? How believable would that be to you? Like, like I know that if I told my brother and sister that, I, I, they wouldn't even get out, out of their chair to come investigate that. Like, the untruth of it would be so obvious to them. The fact that Mary and the brothers of Jesus are in the upper room praying to God in the name of Christ. It's telling. It's really telling. There's a, you know, it's, People closest to us sometimes may be the hardest to convince for two reasons. One, they know, the, they, they know us in a specific way. Right? So they think of us as a brother or as a sister or as a son or as a daughter, and they just can't ever get past that. Right? Jesus endured this. When Jesus was ministering and the ministry of Christ went up towards Galilee to where his family lived, there was all this buzz about Christ. This is Mark chapter 3, Mark three twenty one that I'm accounting. All of this buzz about Jesus. And there was all this talk about the signs he had done and all the things he had spoken and, and the demons he had cast out. And when he comes across his mother and his brothers, they come out to rescue him and they say he's possessed. Like the, they can't even begin to imagine him in his called role. He's their carpenter brother. So that's got its own challenge. But then there's the other challenge of not just you're used to thinking of somebody in a certain role, but you know them so well. Just test this for yourself. Can you ever imagine bowing before the Lord and praying in the name of your brother? Unless your brother is a whole lot different than, well, I won't say my brother. I don't want to call him me, right? It's hard to imagine. 
It really speaks of the faith that they have here. Just think of Mary. Here's another way of thinking about it. When Jesus was resurrected, the competing claim, the alternative definition of what happened was that the body of Jesus Christ was stolen. That was what that was what the Pharisees put out, is someone stole the body of Christ. Okay, so I'm just going to address the moms in the room. Do you think if you were a mother who had witnessed the brutal crucifixion of your son, and you uh, come to find out that this group says he's risen from the dead, and this group says he's, the body has been stolen, do you think you would care to find out which is true? You're in the throes of grief. Don't you think you'd want to know? And don't you think that if Mary, that if Mary came to the, the apostles and said, you know, you say Jesus is risen, and if they said, wow, we're just saying that. Actually, his body's rotting in the back alley, but we're going to make our big name for ourselves. Can you, just as a, the mother in you, <laughs> Can you imagine what you would do? She is with them in the upper room, praying to God in the name of Jesus. There's a lot of faith here. Like, this might be the one week, uh, this one week epic where the Holy Spirit's not been given, but we can say there's faith. There's faith in God. Let's see what else we can see here. Let's look at verse 15. Now, I'm going to read, uh, my reading of 15 through 20 is a little bit complicated because Peter's trying to talk, but he's about to, he's going to say something that we wouldn't understand. And so, half in the midst of Peter's speech, Luke is going to hit a pause button and for two verses explain something. Otherwise, we would have no context. So, I'm going to, Luke starts off, so verse 15 is by Luke. And he writes, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, okay, now verse 16 and 17 are Peter. And he says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Okay. Now, in my Bible, I have a parenthesis for verse 18. Okay. Luke is gonna, he's now interjecting himself into the story. Okay. So he's going to explain something. And what he's going to explain is to lay the groundwork for what Peter is about to say. But this is what Luke says. He says, Now this man, speaking of Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldamah, that is, the field of blood. Okay, that's what Luke says. Essentially what Luke is saying is, is, Peter said that the word of God must be fulfilled through the mouth of David about the person Judas. So Peter's about to quote the Psalms. He's about to quote a Psalm of David that he's going to attribute to being about the person Judas. 
And Luke comes in and says, just so you know, so you understand this reference, here's how Judas's demise looked. He hung himself. Well, we know he hung himself in another gospel, but that he fell and he, his, his, his guts spilled out on the field. It turns out the, the field remained sort of uninhabited and it was named the field of blood. It be, became sort of this cursed field. Okay, Luke says, I just want you to know that because of what Peter's about to say. And this is what he says in verse 20. So now Peter again. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's Psalm 69 he quotes. And then he quotes Psalm 109. And let another take his office. So Psalm 69 Peter's going to use to sort of show how the word of God is fulfill, was fulfilled through the way that Judas's life ended. And then he's going to refer to Psalm 109 as the justification for the need to get a 12th apostle and another apostle. In other words, if you're wondering why did they appoint a 12th apostle, it's not because it's not because 12 is bigger than 11 or because necessarily there were 12 tribes, though I certainly think that must have been in their minds, or that 11 is a prime number and whoever uses a prime number, or, or whatever. Right? It's not one of those things. It's the Word of God is compelling Peter and the apostles to do this. That their search of the Scriptures is unveiling to them the sense of obedience to the Lord in order to fulfill this through the, through the pen of David and the Psalms. Now, I want, to show you, I want to show you Psalm 69, okay? Now, I know this is too small to read, and that's okay. Uh, that's the 69th Psalm. And the reason I want to show this to you is because the verse that, uh, that he uses, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, is the 25th verse, which is right there, Okay? Now, when I see this done, I, if something in me sort of feels like it got cherry-picked. Like, here's this whole psalm, and in the midst of it, Peter's kind of pulling out a verse almost out of context. That's how I've always sort of viewed this. I've always come to these, these passages and been like, uh, whatever, and I just keep going because it feels like he cherry-picks. But you know, this week in preparation, I sat and I, and I read Psalm 69 and I read Psalm 109 and then I read 109 and then I read Psalm 69 and then I read Psalm 109 and then I read Psalm 69 and then I read Psalm 109. And they're both unique. They're psalms. They're called imprecatory psalms, which are psalms that cry out against one's enemy. Okay? So Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 in general are about a betrayer. It's, it is the victim or the betrayed calling out to God in light of their betrayal. And it's in the midst of this. You can just imagine. By the way, you can imagine Peter. Like, and the other disciples. Dealing with the way that they had abandoned Christ. That they had denied Christ. And that Judas had betrayed Christ. You, it is no longer hard for me to imagine how Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 might minister to them. I mean, how, how betrayed Christ was. And so, uh, the reason I put this on the screen is because I've always thought of Peter as a fisherman, which is what he was. 
Just imagine how, how much he had in his life been pouring over these psalms for a verse like this to rise up. For a verse like this to rise up and for him to say, this is about Jesus. It says an awful lot. It says an awful lot about the apostles by this point. It shows us that when they turn to the Old Testament, they're no longer turning to the Old Testament to prove Jesus is who he says he is. They're turning to the Old Testament knowing Jesus is who he says he is, and they're reinterpreting the Old Testament. It's the other way around. They're not looking at Isaiah 53 and going, wow, Isaiah 53 really prophesied that Jesus would be crucified, therefore the crucifixion of Jesus is believable. That's not what they're doing. That's what you and I might do. That's not what they're doing. They are living in the imminent truth of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they're now looking back into the Old Testament and it's flipping the Old Testament on its head. And it's causing them to say, the word who became flesh is now fine. We can find him everywhere in the Old Testament. This is really the way the Christian ought to read the scriptures. This is really the way from belief. You know, there's ways in our lives where there's parts of scripture that we scrutinize. There are the sorts of parts of Scripture that are on the defense. Did that really happen? Did it happen the way that, that it said? What are the options of believability available to me? Do I really have to think this? Do, what do I have to think about God if this is true? You know those kinds of passages, whether it's Jonah or Noah or Jericho, or you name them, right? All these other passages, they're sort of on the defense. And when we come across them, we scrutinize them. How true are they really? That's not what they're doing. And there's, there's something that happens, by the way, in our lives where when passages that were on the defense of all this time, we sort of sit above them and outside of them and we try to scrutinize them and understand them. Eventually, one day, they become true on their own two feet and they gain power. Like rather than being on the defensive, now they have the right to start preaching. And that's how I feel the apostles are, is they have this Old Testament and throughout the ministry of Jesus, it's, I can imagine them, just like the Pharisees, weighing him against the Old Testament. Is he really the one? Is, because this is what the Scripture said. He would be the son of David. Well, he is the son of David. Well, he would be that. Well, he is that. They'd be testing him. And eventually, he stands on his own two feet, and he has Christ. It's the power of Jesus that's interpreting the text now. I guess what I want to say is, is in this week without the Spirit, we can say they had faith and we can say they had the Scriptures. They had Scripture with them. They're motivated by the Scriptures. They're not motivated by the fact that 11 is a prime number. They're motivated by the command of God that they see in the Psalms. And here's what they do. Let's look at 21. So this is Peter picking up again, and he's now addressing the room. This room of 120, this company of persons of about 120, he says. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, 
who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry of the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Okay. So they cast lots. That's often what we remember, but I think if we're a little more careful, we realize they didn't just cast lots, did they? I mean, the process is actually, the process is actually a fairly lengthy process. In fact, even though the casting of lots might sound somewhat alien or foreign to us, apart from maybe that little thing, this whole process is an admirable process. It stands as a great way to describe how people and God pursue how people pursue God's will and how God interacts with, with this pursuit. I mean, let's just look at what they did. How, how did they start with this? We could say first, they started with the leading of Scripture, right? The reason they're doing this is because they believe the Scriptures are leading them. They're being obedient to the Word of God. That's the first step. The second step is they have this set of qualifications that they lay down. They say, this is verse 21, that their interest is in someone who has been with them, been among them in the interactions with Jesus. In other words, they're choosing of that 120 people, they're choosing from those who day after day and night after night were walking along with the other apostles, people that they knew well, who sat at the campfire with Jesus all of this time. That's They're saying, of this, we're looking for people who have lived life with us along the way in the ministry with Jesus. That's the second thing they do. And the third thing they do is they set parameters. They say, this is verse 22, from the day when John the Baptist was baptizing all the way up until the resurrection. If someone's going to be the 12th apostle, which we feel that we need to find because of the counsel of Scripture, then it needs to be somebody who was with us and among us and like us and walked around with us when we got sent out two by, well, as two by two in the 70s, they were probably one of those people who went out. When there was the feeding of the 5,000, well, they were there too. When we tell stories, they nod with agreement because they were there when those stories were, when those things happened. And when they tell stories, I can affirm the stories that they tell because I was there when that happened. Their life and my life over the past two years with Jesus Christ is essentially the same. And they were there the whole time. They weren't Johnny-come-lately. They weren't the most recent convert. They were there from the early days. They were there when many weren't yet there. And when you apply that standard, you whittle this number of 120 down to two. Justice and Matthias. That's what you got. And it's not as though there's a huge risk here. It's not like you're throwing a dart into a room of 120 people hoping you get the 12th disciple. It's more like chocolate ice cream or strawberry ice cream. It's more to the effect of, you might even say it this way, 
that when they get down to two qualified individuals, that they turn the decision-making back over to the Lord because who are they to pick the, who are they to pick the apostle? In fact, none of, they didn't pick themselves. God picked them. So it's like they get to a place where they, Lord, here are two equally qualified individuals, and we give it back to you to show us who. And that's where the lots fall in. Some have said they did lots because they did not have the Holy Spirit. And I find that thoughtful. I don't, I don't know if I have to agree with it. I do find it interesting that this is uh, the one week where Jesus isn't there to answer their question and the Holy Spirit's not there to guide them. Uh, and so maybe they drew lots. We also know we, there was no other example in the New Testament of casting lots. It wasn't a practice. Uh, like if you come to a membership class here, we're not going to do that. There'll be no casting of lots. Uh, and we find that in a lot of ways, this is a place that people who have the Spirit of God lean on the Spirit of God. But I, I would say, I, I do think it's deeper than that. I do think the apostles are trying to squarely put in the hands of God a decision that only God can make. And that's the selection of the apostles. And we can say that while they may not have had the Holy Spirit, they had faith, they had the Old Testament Scriptures, and they had the witness of the apostles. That's, and we have faith and the Old Testament Scriptures and the witness of the apostles and the Holy Spirit. They, didn't quite, they don't yet have the Holy Spirit. It comes in the next chapter. It comes next Sunday. Okay, next Sunday the Holy Spirit shows up. All right, but this week they had, they had faith in Jesus Christ. They had unshakable faith in Jesus Christ. They had the counsel of the Old Testament Scriptures and they had the witness of the apostles. I mean, the New Testament is for us the witness of the apostles. That's the apostles' teaching. We have all of what they had and we have the Holy Spirit. And I, 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 won't, I only want to end on that thought because if you just take the whole week in, here's what the week feels like. It feels like people gathering in a room to pray and make a few administrative changes. <laughs> Elect leaders. That the week without the Holy Spirit, and it's a good week, and I'm not, I'm not indicting this week as if there's anything missing there, okay, but... I want to take it, I want to go somewhere with it, right? It looks here like the sum total of their life is gathering to pray. They gather together for prayer and they take care of some in-house problems. And the Lord told them to do that. He said, don't go anywhere. Wait, wait for the Holy Spirit. So they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do because they don't have the Holy Spirit. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit, their life is typified in this time as gathering together and taking care of some in-house business. The reason I say it that way is because that behavior, if we're not careful, can typify the life of the church today 
with the Spirit. I guess what I mean to say is, is do you think, do you, is this how you think of your life in the Spirit? Well, I know I have life in the Spirit because I gather together to pray. Or I gather together to worship periodically. And when asked to sit in the nursery, I sit in the nursery. Or if asked to vote on the building program, I vote on the building program. Or if asked to nominate a deacon, I nominate. Like I gather together on Sunday and when required, I take care of some in-house business. I would say, well, you don't need the Spirit for that. Or maybe it's better said, a church with the Spirit does much more than that. You know, next week the Spirit's coming in this church. Not this church, but this church. Next week the Spirit's coming in this church, and when it comes, the church is realized outside of the room, not inside of the room. The Spirit comes, and the next thing you know, they're outside of the room. They're sent. They're charged. There's action. This, in this action book called Acts, this is the only quiet 15 verses in the whole chapter, or in the whole book practically. It's the only time that they're just waiting in a room. Then the Spirit comes. And life starts to happen. I guess I would, I would word the question this way. We too, you know, I think you could say you have faith and you have the Old Testament Scriptures and you have the New Testament Scriptures, which is the witness of the apostles. You have these things. And you have the Holy Spirit, to which I would say, well, as we study in Acts, what kind of week does your life look like? Does it look like this week? Because this is the week without the Spirit. Or is it going to look like these other weeks? And I don't mean that you need to be speaking in tongues or healing or raising the dead. Uh, but maybe I would say this. Maybe this would be the challenge, particularly with the worship, the music we sang and, and the things we've already said that have come out of our mouths, that, that God would follow us out of here, out of here, and into wherever we're going. That, that, that you would say... I gather together to worship, uh, to gather around the teachings of the apostles, right? to gather around the scripture and to remind myself in the Holy Spirit what the gospel is. But because I have the Holy Spirit on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, my life is meaningfully connected with the kingdom. We'll let that question follow us. That I know you may have faith, and I know we have the scriptures, and I know we have the witness of the apostles, but what week, what week of church history are you living in?